If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with your friends if you like it. Today, I have a conversation with Nicholas Eberstadt. He is the author of Men Without Work, which is a new post-pandemic edition. It was originally a study uh, that he did back in 2016 that uh, was uh, very insightful into some of the the dynamics that were going on in terms of uh, the lack of work, uh, particularly among uh, the, uh, the rates of American men in uh, t- uh, prime working age, that's 25 to 54. Uh, Nicholas is uh, an expert in these matters and someone who has been uh, working on uh, these types of questions for a very long time. And he gave us his insight on what's really going on in the economy today with so many people in the wake of the pandemic uh, who are finding it very difficult to return to work. Nicholas Eberstadt, coming up next. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Nicholas Eberstadt, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I read with interest your post-pandemic edition of Men Without Work. We had the opportunity previously to discuss uh, your pre-pandemic edition of uh, this uh, book and study. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what changed uh, and what uh, the situation looks like now uh, compared to when your initial book came out. Well, thank you for having me on, Ben. It's a pleasure, as it was the first time we discussed this uh, rather unpleasurable subject. Uh, In the six years since uh, the first edition of Men Without Work came out, we had a few tiny little things happen in the United States, a pandemic crisis in which we lost a million of our citizens. Um, The flight from work, the collapse of work for men that I described or um, warned about in 2016, unfortunately, has been continuing almost in a straight line fashion. Uh, But uh, as they say on uh, QVC, uh, but wait, there's more and all of the more is worse. Uh, As everybody knows, nowadays, we have a peacetime labor shortage in the United States, 11 million unfilled jobs. And much of the reason for this is because there has been a flight from work in new groups of the population that had not been affected or infected by the, what we might have called the men without work syndrome. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about those groups and what's what the dynamics are there uh, in terms of the populations that you're seeing affected by this now. Well, up for about 50, now almost 60 years, we've seen this flight from work by prime age men, by the 25 to 54 group. Uh, the collapse of employment for prime age men in modern America has been due not to unemployment. You know, we've got almost record low unemployment. It's by uh, vacating the labor force altogether, getting down to bring us down to kind of late depression work levels for men. Uh, since the pandemic, uh, we have found ourselves in a situation where overall workforce numbers are about 4 million lower than we would have expected on pre-pandemic trends. This is even after the recovery, right? Um, And that gap isn't all prime age men. We've got a new face to the flight from work in America. The two groups that I'd point to are workers, former workers, uh, men and women of 55 and older, indeed 65 plus as well, they had been one of the bright spots in the U.S. uh, labor picture for a generation, maybe the only bright spot. They were practically the only group that had had rising work rates and rising labor force participation from the late 90s until the eve of the pandemic. We're also seeing some, um, I don't want to put this too strongly, but we're seeing some curious signs, maybe troubling signs, about certain components of the younger uh, workforce for women. Mm. uh, You write that this is not a traditional skills-based shortage. Uh, I've heard different conversation around that in the media. Uh, Tell me what you think is going on there and what perhaps the media is is inaccurately depicting about that. Well, um, if you if you were to talk uh, to people in the academy or you were to talk to people in policy wonk circles, um, the received wisdom is that the decline of labor force participation in America is driven by economic and structural change, which is, I think, a kind of a fancy way of saying there's less demand for unskilled labor, there's globalization, there's outsourcing of jobs, decline of manufacturing, China enters the World Trade Organization, that sort of business. And there is some truth to that. I mean, it's, that's, uh, that's a worldwide phenomenon. But for the United States, it isn't the whole story. And I don't think it's most of the story. Um, before the pandemic, you could see an almost straight line upwards uh, from 1965 to 2019, in the percentage of guys checked out from the workforce, neither working nor looking for work. So if we believed this demand side storyline, we would have been able to tell where the recessions were. We'd have been able to tell where the trade shocks were. You can't tell that. It's almost a straight line. Um, Now we've got a situation where employers across the entire country in every sector of the economy are basically begging for job applicants. Mm -hmm. And there's an awful lot of work now available for people who aren't like computer coders or chemical engineers, uh, whose, whose main skills would be showing up at work on time every day sober. And those people, obviously, are not 
to be had or we wouldn't have a uh, 11 million uh, 11 million job opening situation in the United States. Obviously, during the pandemic, there was a enormous push in Washington policy wise to try to uh, mitigate the financial effects of so many people being put out of work, so many places being shut down. And that generated uh, a lot of policies that were uh, designed to help tide people over, to give them enough resources that they would be able to pay their bills, uh, you know, uh, pay their rent, uh, and make the kind of, of uh, uh, you know, supportive uh, uh, government steps that typically you would have opposition to from a, a lot of different fiscal conservatives and the like. Uh, instead, you know, even with the Republican administration in charge, uh, they went down that road in order to try to tide people over. Uh, but when it comes to the policymaking now, uh, there is kind of a need to come out of that, to unwind from where things were. How is it possible to do that with an approach that uh, is not cruel to people, who many of whom are still dependent on this kind of largesse, uh, but uh, does basically put them in a position of you have to go back to work. You need to go back and start working again uh, for your own good and for the good of the country and certainly for the good of our finances. Well, well, as you say, the uh, uh, the pandemic crisis was kind of like a wartime situation and we had a lot of fog of war and the uh, policymakers in Washington wanted to avoid a worldwide economic collapse, which for a time certainly seemed like a conceivable possibility. And so they pulled out all the stops in a way which we'd never, ever seen before. We all know that uh, policy interventions always have unintended consequences. And the the mother of all policy interventions is going to have the mother of all unintended consequences. And that's what we're living with now. Um, the, the transfer payments that Washington shot uh, at American consumers with borrowed uh, you know, public debt uh, were intended to keep the uh, wheels of commerce running. And they did. In fact, they actually raised disposable income in the United States in a time of national economic crisis above its pre-crisis levels, maybe the only crisis in, economic crisis in history where this has happened. Likewise, with consumer spending after a you know, theory dip, it headed up to above uh, pre-crisis levels. And uh, consumers, thanks to these transfers, had more money than they could spend or cared to spend. So U.S. savings rates during the crisis actually doubled. And this sort of uh, government windfall amounted to over $2.5 trillion. So part of what we are seeing right now is the wealth effects, I think, of the what you might call the COVID policy lottery. I don't know what you want to call it. But people are, um, I think some people are prematurely retiring from the labor force on some of the winnings that they have from the COVID policy lottery. It's not necessarily only people uh, who are getting the transfer payments. Uh, the Fed uh, had the, uh, the free money policy, which pumped up the stock market. So it may be, uh, may be a bit across the board. But uh, now as we 
um, now as we find ourselves dealing with kind of like the repercussions of the rescue plan uh, with inflation and possibly recession, uh, it's certainly uh, certainly time to uh, encourage people to come back into the workforce. We haven't been doing a terribly good job of that. Um, we did have a natural experiment, though, Ben. Uh, between the time that the uh, mRNA vaccines and the, uh, in, 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 let's say, the nine months after the vaccines began to be rolled out, we had very little uh, in a way of people coming back into the workforce at all. Uh, after the $300 a week unconditional um, uh, pandemic benefits ended, uh, we got a very big response. So people people do respond to economic incentives, and maybe what's going to happen is that we'll see some of the pandemic benefits uh, spent down. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if we get everybody back, though. Um, tell me a little bit about what is uh, what is going on as it relates to service industry jobs. The experience that I've had this summer along uh, with, I'm sure, a lot of Americans is that if you travel or you go to a place uh, that is, uh, you know, a vacation spot or something where, you know, there's a lot of of need for, you know, food service and those, those types of jobs um, everywhere has help wanted signs everywhere. And uh, a lot of the time what you'll find is that these restaurants will have a uh, very uh, odd opening hours or they'll be closed on certain days or they won't offer takeout. And the explanation is always the same, which is some form of, we just don't have enough people working in the kitchen. And to me, that's kind of a, a surprising thing to see uh, in, in this economy uh, th that just doesn't seem, it seems very sticky. It doesn't seem to be going away. Is that going to change and what could change it? Well, it's, what you're describing is absolutely nationwide. I mean, this is a, this is happening absolutely everywhere in the U.S. at the moment, and it's not just in retail, and it's not just in hospitality. It's in every sector, from the most skilled to the least skilled. Um, it's it's particularly odd, given the fact that we're in what's being called this great resignation uh, situation right now. Uh, Job applicants have never had as much bargaining power as they have today in my lifetime, not in my living memory. And that doesn't seem to be enough at the moment to move the needle. Now, there's a markets are great at solving economic problems, but markets are not so good at fixing social pathologies. And what we have to ask, at least at this point, what we'll learn more about, I'm afraid, in the fullness of time, is whether the dropout from the labor force is a market fixable problem or whether we're dealing with something which is more like a social pathology. And I will tell you what I mean by that. Um, for over 50 years, for over half a century before the pandemic, we saw this retreat from the workforce that I mentioned to you for men 25 to 54 years of age. Uh, once men got out of the workforce, it's very hard to get them back in. 
they tended to be long timers. And part of the reason I suspect they tended to be long timers, I can't prove this, but part of the reason I suspect is because I think they may have lost some of the skills that were so helpful uh, in being in the labor force. Mm. This is uh, the evidence that I show in this book about uh, time use, about checking out from civil society, uh, watching screens all the time, uh, taking pain pills, that sort of stuff. Um, I think it is probably too soon to tell whether the 55 plus and 65 plus uh, former workers are going to be long timers now. Are going to decide it's time for the great retirement or whether they're going to go back to work. I have a little bit more hope that they may be may head back into the labor force because you have to remember these are the people who made their bones in the workforce in the 70s and in the 60s and have a different set of maybe attitudes from some of their uh, younger compatriots. But I don't think that we can uh, I don't think we can be sure that this is going to happen. Uh, you know, you mentioned the pain pills and you mentioned earlier the the challenge of having people show up sober to work. The pandemic had an enormous impact in terms of uh, other, uh, you know, difficult uh, diseases, particularly addiction in America. Um, there, I mean, some of the data is relatively early, but in terms of what we know, uh, the level of impact on, uh, on Americans uh, when it came to uh, alcohol consumption and the use of pain pills uh, was certainly a significant factor. Um, personally, I'll just say, as I've said before, I know more people who died of overdose during the last two years than I do of, of COVID. Um, and I think that one of the things that we have to understand is that given the lockdowns that happened in many major cities, uh, you know, it allowed people to kind of retreat to their own apartments and not have social interaction and the kind of things that uh, would prevent you from going down the path toward uh, toward addiction in really dangerous ways. Um, and, you know, it, it removed the ability of being able to basically check up on people. Um, and it also took away, I think, a lot of the things in life that keep you from from falling into that pit. Now we have a significant problem as it relates to this, and we see the continued flow of fentanyl over the border. Um, we see the continued, uh, you know, presence of this as a major problem in many uh, parts of of the country. Is this a situation where addiction, in its uh, forms, to prescription drugs, to alcohol, and the like, are becoming a major factor in preventing people from being able to reenter the workforce? I can't tell you categorically, but I have a uh, I have a fear about that. Uh, there's an awful lot of uh, there's an awful lot of felt pain in the United States today. Um, isn't necessarily back aches. Uh, this isn't necessarily joint troubles, um, and people are. Um, People are self-medicating on a m massive scale. Um, whether this is because there are other things missing in their lives, I'm not the person to ask. Uh, you might want to ask my. Uh, when I'm also Mr. Mary Everstadt, you yes. might want to ask my secret <laughs> weapon about questions. But certainly over the certainly over the past generation the 
trends for what uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton called the deaths of despair are indisputable, and they're pretty frighteningly, uh, frighteningly upwardly uh, oriented. It's a little bit too close to what I used to study in the Soviet Union and Russia for comfort. Um, now, how, uh, I mean, some, some of my colleagues uh, suggest that um, it is, it can be easier to break out of addictive cycles uh, than some of us might imagine, and I hope they are correct. But this new misery, only part of which is the prevalence of addiction, uh, but this new misery, which we see in so many different uh, corners of our modern tapestry, I think is something we all have to be really concerned about. Mm -hmm. Policy solutions. How can we possibly shift things in Washington uh, or at the state level uh, that will encourage people to get out of this rut, to get them back to work, uh, and to do so in ways uh, that increase the likelihood that they will be able to keep and hold a job? Well, let's let's talk about things that we don't want the government to do, and then let's talk about things we uh, might want the government to do. Um, we have a uh, we have a, a screeching, screaming need to fix the family in the United States. Um, that's not something that Washington is going to do. If we have a department of fixing the family, it's going to make the situation worse in ways we can't imagine right now. Uh, this is a task for civil society and for our little platoons uh, and for concerned persons everywhere uh, in their own walks of life. Uh, it is hard to talk about that without also talking about faith. Um, if the United States had a, uh, a family structure and a faith profile like 1965, we'd have a very, very different work profile in our country today because part of what we are talking about, obviously, is a moral question. It is a question about the meaning of life. I mean, those of us who've uh, been, in, uh, been in the game know that work is a service uh, to others that helps complete you. And there are uh, non-dollars and cents benefits that come to this that have great positive spillovers for society. So, um, yes, we... we Dearly need uh, we dearly need to repair our wounded family structure and uh, to address the uh, the faith question, but that's not for Washington or for local governments. Mm -hmm. um, what here's here are a few things I think that government can do. Uh, it can and I think really is obligated to address the scandalous. Uh, educational outcomes that we see in so much of the United States. Um, college isn't for everybody, but everybody who graduates from school should graduate with a marketable skill, and that's not happening. Mm -hmm. um, if we can't repair the broken uh, public K through 12s in various parts of the country, maybe the maybe we need to have a vocational um, uh, add-on, something like that. People are talking about different options for that. By the way, um, 
you may have noticed that vocational is a word you're not supposed to use anymore. If you're I've in heard the that. Higher education. <laughs> it, it is politically incorrect now, which tells you what part of the problem is. <laughs> another uh, another thing, of course, is we have to look at our uh, archipelago of disability insurance, uh, disability insurance programs. Um, they were uh, founded with the... Um, let's see, beneficent intention of uh, providing for people who were not able to work, but they've somehow been turned upside down and perverted so that they're offering a sort of a penurious uh, work-free existence alternative to the working uh, working world. Um, I don't think it's too much to say that it be good to think about starting over and starting over with a sort of a work first principle. I mean, this would have unintended consequences of its own, obviously, but I think they might be smaller than the consequences that we have from the existing system. It would probably be more expensive than the system we have now, but uh, encouraging or financing helplessness and dependence, I, I don't think is the way to go. We want to have people back in the game and that's going to have spillover benefits that we're not even thinking about right now. We also need to think about the over 20 million American adults who are not behind bars, but who have a felony in their background. They are statistically invisible for some reason. Uncle Sam, in his wisdom, has decided not to collect information on them. They're the largest single population that lives in the shadows in America today, much larger than uh, illegal alien population. Um, we can't have evidence-based policies for people who want to rehabilitate themselves if we don't have the evidence for this. And so instead, we've got uh, anecdotal, you know, individualized programs all around the country that uh, that are, in effect, offering a federal experiment to what we can be doing right, and we can't be learning from it. Um, there are many, many people in this invisible population who I think could make contributions to society uh, if we'd be a little bit more uh, open to that. Uh, let's uh, close on this. Uh, it seems to me that there's a uh, a major question going on right now about the uh, the prevalence, the rising nature of, of of crime, particularly violent crime, in American cities. Uh, and to me, this you know, there's a lot of different things at work there, um, a lot of different dynamics. But one of the dynamics has to be, from my perspective, the the level of homelessness, the level of vagrancy, and uh, and how much that is playing into uh, the the presence of crime in, in places like New York City, uh, San Francisco. Uh, the uh, You've seen, I'm sure, the images of, of uh, you know, rushing gangs of people essentially looting stores and the like. And yes, there's the answer of sort of saying we need to have stronger law and order policies on the one hand. But it also seems to me that work is a big part of this, too, and that the the absence of, of people from the workforce is only going to include is only going to encourage the kind of, of uh, behavior that is 
uh, you know, just an absolute, you know, terrible scene in terms of, of some of these great American cities. Is there a way to go about trying to encourage work to come back in these in these cityscapes and among that population or the adjacent population uh, that would lead to a downturn in crime uh, as a potential benefit? Well, you know, policy wonks always talk about lessons learned, but I think we need to pay attention to lessons forgotten. Mm. We've forgotten what it was like to have a high crime environment throughout the United States uh, before the late 1990s. And we're going to be learning about that again real fast. And it's not a it's not a fun lesson to be forced to remember. But put that aside for a moment. Uh, and that, I think, is a failure on the part of uh, Washington and uh, and uh, city managers across the country. Here's one thing that I think uh, might have a long-term positive effect. Um, We've seen in our lifetimes the death of the summer job for teenagers. Back in the 1970s, most 15 to 17-year-olds were looking for or getting uh, work in the summertime. Um, Now it's a tiny fraction of this group. Um, what this means, among other things, is that no matter what your, uh, you know, what your educational attainment, you don't become familiar with paid work until you're in your 20s. That's kind of late. Um, if you start instilling the habits of reliability, dependability, service to others, in younger people, I think you preclude some of the pathological, uh, predatory behavior that we're seeing with the crime upsurge today. Yeah, I think that definitely would be something that would be interesting as an approach to try to get that to change, both from a you know societal way in terms of valuing it and uh, to re-inject it within our culture. So many people, I think... Uh, just go to the answer of we need more cops, we need more law and order. But it seems to me like there's a lot more going on here than just that. No, I think that we certainly do need law and order, but one of the things which one can do to encourage law and order is to put people on the right life course early. Yeah. Nicholas Eberstadt's uh, new book is the post-pandemic edition of Men Without Work. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Ben, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. I want to say a quick word about the comments from Stacey Abrams, uh, the uh, gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, who was recently uh, giving uh, a presentation in which uh, she made comments about uh, the nature of the human heartbeat uh, that suggested that uh, when heartbeats actually appear on ultrasounds, they're not really heartbeats uh, and that it's just uh, an electrical uh, thing that uh, is being invented by men in order to um, take rights away from women. This is, of course, ludicrous. Uh, what is, of course, happening at that stage of development is uh, that the unborn child uh, is forming the early stages of a heart. Uh, it's not something that you would call a heart in sort of the fully formed way. And the heartbeat is something that, uh, you know, is is detected via movement. It's not something that is uh, detected 
uh, via you know any other kind of, of sound uh, means and that kind of thing. It's one of these things that is, uh, of course, organic. It's you're listening to uh, the movement of an organ in its formation. And of course, you know, you can call it what you will, but it is a heartbeat or what we would call a heartbeat in terms of its earliest stages. Uh, the fact that uh, Stacey Abrams would deny this is just an indication that, you know, frankly, she doesn't want to deal with the consequences of what it would mean for a baby, an unborn baby, to have a heart. That's something that I think is uh, very true of the way that the left talks about the abortion issue generally. But there's one thing that I do think is going on here that is important for uh, for pro-lifers to understand in terms of the arguments that are being advanced. Namely, that uh, the left is now using freedom-based arguments uh, related to the abortion issue in ways that they really haven't uh, for years. Uh, they're leaning into the idea that they are a party that stands for more freedom, not less. Uh, and that's something that I think that, you know, frankly, uh, a lot of Republicans and conservative candidates across the country have not been very well prepared to respond to. Why they haven't been, I think you can indict a lot of different people. You can say, you know, it's the fault of the pro-life movement for uh, educating people in advance. It's the fault of, uh, of people who, uh, you know, are pro-lifers within the cultural context, uh, using language for far too long that was focused on the legal side of the battle. But for whatever the reason, whatever you want, whoever you want to blame in this context, it's very clear that pro-life Americans need to uh, improve their arguments and really lean into this issue. When it comes down to it, the polling actually indicates that the majority of Americans are in favor of essentially the heartbeat bill position. That once a child reaches the stage of development where a heartbeat can be detected, they consider them to be a child. Uh, and worthy of legal protection. Now, of course, that's something that, you know, not a lot of politicians will say publicly, uh, but it is true. We do have the data to support it. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's so discouraging to see pro-lifers seem as if they're back on their heels or something in this moment, uh, when they should be triumphant and they should be happy, but they all should be, also should be hopeful and stressing the need to support women at every stage of pregnancy and the development of their child. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the front. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.